Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games. As told by the very people who organized them, I'm Christian Napier, and today I am joined by Jim Brown, who is a giant in this industry in major events, and I'm honored to have you, Jim, join us from Park City, I presume. Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me and letting me part of be be a part of this great forum that you have. And uh, it's the first time I've been referred to as a giant of the industry, which which I'm I'm blushing a little bit here. Well, it's true. It's true. Um, you've got a long and storied career, and we're going to get into all of that uh, here in the in the coming moments. But before we dive into that career too much, into all of the detail, why don't you give us a sense of what you're working on currently? Well, currently I'm uh, I'm um, working on uh, the Rugby um, World Cup bid for the United States. So I, um, I I was involved as a managing director of the bid for the Soccer World Cup of 2026 here in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And, and then based on that success, I was uh, nominated for a board position with USA Rugby, which I accepted in 2018. And then have transitioned after two years of work on the board, we decided to embark on a, on a feasibility study to see if the United States could host a Rugby World Cup in 2027 or 31. So I'm leading that pro- process as, a, as the chairman, executive chairman, I have to say, and, um, and a few other projects, um, smaller projects, well, bigger projects, but smaller roles in a variety of uh, three or four other things, but generally focused on rugby right now. Well, that's fantastic. So you got your hand in a lot of pots, yeah. um, doing a lot of great things. But I'm curious about how COVID is impacting this work that you're doing. I mean, you know, in the past, we would go places and we'd have meetings yeah. and convene board meetings and things of this yeah. nature, but uh, um, a little bit more difficult to do that now under this uh, pandemic. So yeah. how has that impacted the work that you're currently doing? I think where, where it's impacted is you no longer have the I guess two sides. One is you're you're no longer having to travel to the client, or 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 getting on planes at all. Uh, I do it every rarely, but I've done it a few times. Um, and I think the other side is, is you you don't gather as a team. So my my team or the team working on this rugby World Cup is based in Denver, where USA Rugby is, which isn't very far. You know, I have Richard Bezemer helping here in Park City. I've uh, colleague from my FIFA days in Boston helping. So I think we're spread all over the country. And even even Richard, who lives probably a mile away, I, I haven't seen him really in, in several months, uh, quite frankly, uh, partially by choice, perhaps. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, no, I think it just makes the, the reality of it is we've, I think, gotten accustomed to this remote role and, and lifestyle and and style of working, which which has I think been quite a, quite a smooth transition, in my opinion. But there are moments where you really wish you could all be sitting in the same room and, and dealing with issues. So, but but it's been relatively smooth, and and I don't think it's been too difficult, uh, given what what if we thought it could be. Well, one of the benefits of not having to travel is that you actually get to spend time from home. I guess some people might consider that a mixed blessing, but have you been able to make some good use of that time at home? You know, you get out on the slopes or doing some fun things uh, together with the, with the family. Yeah, no, no question. I I think, 
I think when our kids, when we, we locked down or things changed in March of last year, you know, the kids didn't go to school. So that was a different thing. But now that, and, and knock on wood, I think we've all been fortunate that our kids do go. We have 10 year old twins who, who have gone to school from the beginning of the school year. And that's really allowed us, I think, to uh, work the way we are currently working. But as you said, it's also allowed us the time to spend with them um, um, more, more than we typically would. You know, I used to travel you know, over 200 days a year and it's gone to probably two days a year, which, which has been really pleasant. So, so it's, it's been in, in a weird way. And I think accepting a few things that are, are not very pleasant in, in a weird way, it's, it's actually been a, a positive in a lot of ways. Well, that's good. I'm glad that it's worked out and it's been a positive, uh, a net positive uh, for you. Yeah. I know they're up in uh, Park City and in, in uh, Summit County. You know, our, our friend Chris Crowley has been helping yeah. to kind of uh, steer things from an emergency management perspective and everything. Uh, but I think that you guys um, up, up in your neck of the woods, even though it really started to kind of manifest itself first and, you know, yeah intensively in that area you've done a really good job of kind of managing it since then yeah no i think we're we're very fortunate especially with with ski season in the winter you know we all thought might maybe there might be a spike of some sort because we do have more than most communities we've had a lot of visitors and and knock on wood and maybe uh, a lot of help from chris and, and the summit county folks i think we we've done a good job of, of avoiding that so far and and, and we are surrounded now, obviously, with, with the, the pandemic and we feel it. People on our street have been getting it. But, you know, we still have been able to maintain uh, ourselves in a safe and comfortable environment so far. So it's uh, I think generally speaking, Park, Park City has been a, a positive place to be. Well, and hopefully, you know, this vaccine will get rolled out and and uh, we'll be able to get on planes again, not just for business, but also for leisure. You have any travel plans for 2021? So far, no, uh, although we're, we're hoping by the summer we can go do something. You know, I have a, a son who's a, quite a competitive ski racer. So, you know, he has plans, obviously, to go ski in various parts of the world to, to stay competitive. Um, we also hope to take the 10 year olds off to, to Europe at some point to see where they were born. Um, so all of that is, is a wait and see, but we hope to do that in 2021 if possible. Yeah. I, that would be awesome. Yeah. Were they born in Zurich because you were there, um, uh, during your FIFA days? Yeah, they were born. All three of our boys were born in, in Zurich, uh, about seven years apart. One was born soon after we arrived and the two were born soon, just before we left. So all within, uh, we were moving in both both directions and, and uh, dealing with little guys. So we're, we're yeah, they were all born in that. That was a big factor in moving back to Park City was was the the opportunity to raise our family in in the, in the United States and in in a community we we plan to stay in for a while. So just out of curiosity, well, two questions. Number one. Um, do they get any kind of citizenship status in Switzerland, having been born there? Number two, why Park City? Uh, you could choose to probably live anywhere in the United States coming back from, yeah. from Europe. Uh, why choose Park City? Uh, great questions. Um, I think, uh, well, we we loved Park City when we lived here. And I, I think it was, a I wouldn't say a surprise, but it was really, I think, the the aha experience that this is where we wanted to live. My wife and I were married here. 
um, and we had planned to stay. Uh, so we left uh, a little bit um, a little bit concerned that we made made a mistake to go uh, to to leave. Um, so when we left, we we always thought we would come back here. And then we had three kids born and three boys born in, in Zurich. And I think knowing the the community, knowing the environment, the outdoor kind of community that we have here, I think we thought it would be a great place to raise our kids. And, and that proved to be a, a good decision. And linked to the fact we, we still have a lot of friends here, and, and at least personally for Angie and I, we would transition back into a community that we knew and friends that we had. And and those friends too, similar to us, had had kids around the same time. We all kind of followed the same uh, project plan, so to speak, and and made the, the transition home really smooth and, and one we've really benef- benefited from. I want to come back to the 2021 travel just a, just a smidge because although I've really enjoyed being home for a year mm-hmm. now, I think the last business trip that I took on a plane before the COVID lockdowns was late February. Mm-hmm. I would like to go somewhere where there's ocean. <laughs> and that actually takes me to my crazy marooned on an Island question for you. So I've, I've been asking this question this year, people, if you were marooned on an Island, knowing that you would eventually be rescued, I don't want it to make more, make this morbid, but yeah. You're there for an extended period of time, like Tom Hanks and Castaway or something. You've got one movie, one album, one meal to have on the island with you until your rescue. What would they be? The the album would be Steve Miller Band's Greatest Hits. And uh, the reason I, I think of that is... I think I was 12 or 13 when I bought the album and loved it back then. I remember living in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, where I I was partially raised and thinking it was the greatest album ever. And then my my current 17-year-old son fell in love with the music about seven years ago or so. Uh, And and now my 10-year-old twins are listening to it. And it's probably one of the only albums I can remember every word to every song. And it's still good. And it's not a normal, probably, choice by people, but it's something that resonates for me for the last 40 plus years. So it's been a, that, that would be my album. Well, that's an awesome choice for an album. And one of the great things about greatest hits albums, you get more songs on the <laughs> album, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, what about your movie? The movie's a, a little tougher. I, I think you know, my, my favorite movie uh, is Apocalypse Now, which isn't necessarily a, a deserted island kind of movie. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I, I think it'd probably still be my choice because it, it just, again, similar to what I've said. I, I remember when I watched it for the first time and I watched it with my kids recently. Uh, it's not exactly a kid movie, but it, it also resonated with them. And I think it'd be a, a movie that I would love to watch and, and feel entertained by for sure. And there's definitely some others that I would choose, but that would probably, that's the first one, one that comes to mind. That's really interesting. Um, my oldest son, who's 26 years old, that movie is one of his all-time favorites as well, Apocalypse Now. And it's also a fairly long movie, so it's another good one to have there on the, on the island. Okay, let's get to a meal. 
meal. It could be homemade meal. It could be something you eat at a restaurant. But what would be your go-to meal on your marooned island? Well, my choice of meal always, uh, if somebody asked me for for my choice, would be a, a roasted chicken with rice and vegetables and salad meal, ideally prepared by my by my grandmother of all places from from the old old country uh, of Russia. So um, that'd be my choice. Of, of a meal. Um, plus I get to see my grandmother. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Very awesome. Yeah. Well, gosh, you're so international. We've talked about Switzerland. We've talked about Malaysia. Yeah. We've talked yeah. about Russia here. Yeah. yeah. So let's put all that in the melting pot and bring wow. it into Salt Lake. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background Mm -hmm. uh, where you came from. You mentioned growing in Malaysia. I didn't know about that. That's just crazy. Yeah. And then how you eventually ended up in Salt Lake City. Yeah. Um, well, you, you probably know, but I, I started my, my major event experience in 1994, similar to a, a few notable veterans of the Salt Lake Olympics, you know, Colin Hilton, Richard Besmer, and a few others. So we started in 94 Soccer World Cup. Most of us transitioned soon after to to Atlanta. Um, and after Atlanta, I was pretty sure I didn't want to do another big event ever. Um, so I went from there to, to major league soccer and helped start uh, major league soccer, you know, certainly early on and then did a couple of seasons with them. Uh, but New York city wasn't for me. So I, I you know, got a call out of, out of the blue from Sydney and, uh, went to Sydney in 1998 early 1998 and, and really had, uh, I think the experience that one would always hope, uh, an Olympic experience would be. So definitely felt better than the Atlanta experience and Atlanta was great. You know, met my wife there. So there's a lot of positives coming out of Atlanta, but Sydney was really special in a lot of ways. And, and through that process, you know, there was a wave of, of Salt Lake people who came through Sydney, um, and given the fact that I was overseeing Olympic Stadium in Sydney, um, I was asked by Doug Arnott if I could give a tour to Mitt Romney um, of Olympic Stadium, which was really a, a memorable experience, which we'll get to later. But walked around with him and, and Fraser Bullock was, was there and Doug was there. And it was really quite a, a long tour with a lot of great conversations, as you know, I, I always had with with that group. And. And I think that's where I was really interested in then transitioning back to Salt Lake because I knew I had to come back to the United States and it was really a smooth one. And Doug and Fraser and Mitt gave me the opportunity to come back and work for, for the Salt Lake Olympics, what I, I did starting in, in uh, early 2001, actually December of 2000, I guess, but then needed a break. So I took a couple of weeks off and, and then came back to Salt Lake full time uh, in, in early 2001. A couple of weeks. Now, some of our Australian friends or European friends, they would they would think a few months would be a nice yeah. appropriate break after yeah. the, close, uh, the closing of a of a games. But you take a break for a couple of weeks, then you come here early two thousand one to work in the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. Yep. Why don't you tell us what your role was here? What were you responsible for doing? Well, I started as a project manager or whatever the title was. I can't remember director. I'm I'm not sure what it was, but um, yeah, I helped within the venues team, but working with Doug. Uh, and, and really felt comfortable, obviously, in helping him out and helping the division out as we prepared the venues and the operations of venues. 
And then about eight months, maybe six months in, into that, um, you know, I was asked if I could take a more a significant role in venues. Doug was going to head up the, the security side of things, especially with 9-11 being a, a major factor uh, and needing his expertise in that area. You know, with, with his blessing, you know, I, I shifted over to to that role and um, and I had a great time leading the the venue teams um, as the managing director of venue operations. But certainly, you know, feeling like I was really supporting the venue managers more than directing them, and and, and really helping Fraser and Mitt. I, I think with my Olympic experience, give them more of an understanding of what was coming, and and certainly providing them with that that insight and experience, especially out of the Sydney Olympics. Well, you come in here with with experience. It's quite interesting. I've mentioned this on a few of the other podcasts. You know, Salt Lake, I think, was the beneficiary of having a nice mix of local talent that didn't have any games experience. Right. But you but you have these people that came from World Cup 94, Atlanta 96, right. Sydney 2000, and some other major events, uh, Women's World Cup 99. Yeah. And and so you had this confluence of all of these experiences right. coming in, which I think helped to make Salt Lake yeah. uh, quite special. I'm wondering if you can just kind of speak to that a little bit as, as one of those experienced people mm-hmm. coming into this mix yeah. of people to deliver the event here in Salt Lake. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're right. I mean, and that's the beauty of doing multiple big events is they're always different and everybody's trying to synergize them to be, exactly the same or use the same tools or the same experience or the same processes as, or processes as the Australians say. But, um, I think, you know, the, the unique part for, for me, and you also forgot the 1998 Olympics, uh, experience too, you know, the, the LA crowd came up and, and, and helped a lot too. But I, I do think that the challenge, and I wouldn't say challenge from a difficulty standpoint, but certainly something that needed to be addressed was the extensive amount of experience that landed in, in Salt Lake. And you had the Calgary Olympics and you had all, all sorts of different perspectives, Lillehammer. So you, you had a lot of different entities that really not only had experience, but they were all great, great Olympics. And to try to bring them together into one, as I like to say, the same song sheet or the same sheet of music takes a while. I mean, if you got a, a lot of lead guitarists, lead piano players and lead singers, at some point everybody has to step back and let somebody lead at certain times of it. And, and I think that was a challenge. And in fact, I found myself trying not to emphasize our collective experience as much as just trying to give everybody to agree what the, the next steps would be and, and, and leading planning processes that allowed everybody comfortably to look back and, and validate their information, but also ensure they were consistent with, with everybody else, which is sounds easy, but it's not. And, and the human ego is always a, a challenge when it comes to that kind of stuff. You know, another thing that's uh, that compounds that challenge is the timing of people coming over from right. these previous events, right? Because right. you had Atlanta, and there were some people like Jerry Anderson and Karen Koppel who came over shortly after Atlanta ended, and they've been here a long time. And then you get people coming out of Sydney, yep. and they're coming in for kind of the end stage. Yep. Yep. Um, so what was that dynamic like where you had these people that not only had a lot of experience mixing with new people, but also coming in at different times? Yep. and you know, for someone coming in a, 
a bit later in the in the life cycle, yeah. like you, yep. well, a lot of work's already been done. You yeah. know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it, that can make it a bit of a challenge to come in and, and kind of assimilate in that coming in in a, in a more recent time than, yeah. than some of your counterparts who have been around for a while in yeah. the same organizing committee. I, I had a, a few very refreshing discussions with people who didn't appreciate you know, my, my, my great ideas. And I think early on, um, with the support of Doug and Fraser, you know, I, I, I was quite enthusiastic about some of the things that I was trying to help with and certainly toned it down when I, I was, uh, when I realized that a lot of people in, in Salt Lake, more so than Sydney and Sydney, we literally were on an Island. There were a few of us out there. And I think a lot of it, to a certain extent, maybe our, our opinions were too well received. Uh, but I think here it was really not a question of whether it was a good idea. It was really to understand how to communicate it in a way that it wasn't a threat to all the great work that had happened uh, and that everybody was comfortable that there was a benefit to some of these exercises in the long run. Yeah, but they had to be patient and understand that we weren't a threat. We just wanted to get this done correctly and, and improved um, in time for, for the games. All right. So you come in, you get settled, you, yeah. you, you get into this role. Mm-hmm. What were some of the things that you thought, oh, here's an opportunity to do something really innovative here in Salt Lake that perhaps hasn't been done before or can build on some of the things that you had done before or you had seen done before in some of the other events that you'd worked in? Um, yeah, I think to say innovative would be probably too too much. I think what, what I definitely learned in, in Sydney and, and we all learned um, – was to to try to focus on certain things at certain times as opposed to try to solve everything at the same time. Um, so we developed, I, I think, with, with Doug's help and 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 others, we developed you know a step by step, I would say, last minute process because in, I mean, we ran a process in in Sydney that was really almost three years, four years long. Um, but here we, I didn't have much time. It was barely a year, so we we took a took a step um, that would allow us for about six to eight months to just validate some of the resources, especially. And I think not to say it was innovative. Um, if anything, I tried not to be too innovative because I didn't want it to be, be about what we were doing as much as it was really for everybody else. So I think the, the fact that we, we tried not to make it too fancy and too complicated, um, I think helped uh, a lot. And people were at the time bringing on a lot of staff. So there was a benefit to leaving a legacy of knowledge through some of these exercises. So not directly training, which you certainly understand better than I do, but there was some understanding of what pieces of the planning they they were being involved in, why it was important not to have too many staff and and too much of the, you know, too much is not necessarily a good thing, as you know, in, in these environments. So, but um, I think it was really more of a, 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 a non-threatening process, which also gave our venue managers um, some had tons of experience, like like Colin and others, and and some didn't. And I think it was trying to get them to at least a, a level playing field and a minimum level of understanding when it came to what was important um, for not only them but the the venue teams. I want to talk about that a little bit more. How did you go about building out this team? You had, like you said, a mix of people that had a lot of experience or maybe not as much experience and not just from a, from a skill standpoint, but also from a, from a camaraderie uh, standpoint, because 
you know, my, my recollection of the venue management team, although I was not involved with venue management and, you know, directly or extensively that it was a, that was a, that was a really fantastic team. And I'm, I'm curious the approach that you and Doug took to build skill up that team and then really get it functioning as a team. You mentioned a few moments ago, how you felt like you were just there to really support them and what they were yeah. doing, not really, you know, being the heavy handed yeah. uh, director. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if you can just shed a little bit of light on the process that you, or the approach that you took to really building out and forming this uh, fantastic venue management team. Well, I, I think yeah, it's definitely helped uh, further their preparation is really the way I did. It. I mean, Doug was really a champion of the venue managers in a lot of ways and, and maintained that through a lot of the, even through, through the transition of our roles, but and and I appreciated that. I certainly didn't want that changed or, or impacted. So I, I I think I made it very clear that I you know, certainly had a lot of experience compared to some of them, and and really wanted to make sure that I was there to support them. Uh, and and we had some real stars, like I said, Colin and Alan Brooks, and some of those guys who were great leaders of their teams and certainly knew what to do. But then there were others like. Phil Jordan and others and Donna Corrado, who didn't have the same experience, but I think really rose to the occasion and, and did a great job. Adam Gray came from, from Sydney and here's a, a beach kid from Sydney running s- snow basin. So I, I think I really appreciated everybody's individual style and really let them do their thing, but also made sure that we were consistent where we needed to be. And certainly after 9-11, security was a big, big factor, which, which of course Doug was, was it, oversaw. And Fraser was a great supporter of the venue manager. So to a certain extent, my, my, my job, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was easy, but I certainly had a lot of support from a lot of really good people, um, w- which made it easier for me to help ensure that the venues ran the way they needed to. Let's talk about 9-11 a little bit. Uh, it had an impact, but I'm wondering what, I mean, it was, it was awful what happened, but how did it impact the work that you were doing there with the venues? You mentioned Doug kind of peeling off and really focusing on security yep. after that. Yep. Um, but when it came to your venue management, your venue operations, you know, what were some of the impacts or the things where you had to pivot yep. to, to accommodate the new reality? Uh, you know, and, and, you know, soon after 9-11, Mark Lewis, who I'm still in, in touch with and, and working with on, on a few things, but, you know, Mark had me get on a conference call with, with Mitt and, and present to the, to the sponsors who everybody was really nervous whether this thing was going to go forward. And I think my comment, the least, was if there is an event uh, as as it's currently planned, that can withstand the the needs for a post nine eleven world. You know, the Olympic Games um, are, are one that would be would be more prepared than most. You know, we already had fences, we already had tight security, we already had an understanding of of how to get things in and out, including people uh, out of the venues, and and I think. So we, we had a lot of physical pieces, I think, in place. I think where we did spend a lot of time was to, A, ensure that the operations were really clear and consistent. So how do you get mail delivered into venues? And where do you put the, the Secret Service agents uh, around uh, the venues? Obviously, the, the level of personnel that we had access to went from 
you know, paid security guards to top level agents coming in from the federal government. So I, I think it, the, the seriousness of it obviously went way up and the level of interest went way, way up. And, and certainly the, the need for it to be perfect was uh, at a totally un- unknown level uh, and, and never seen before. And, and that really took a lot of time from and, and attention from our teams and the venue managers specifically. I mean, to a certain extent, we ultimately we asked them in the first few days uh, of the Olympics to actually be based out in uh, the security checkpoints because we expected that many issues early on. Um, because a lot of people didn't know how to do it. And our venue managers really did a great job in those early days of of the Olympics to make sure things went as smooth as possible. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the lead up and uh, the lead up to the games and then games time themselves. Yeah. You know, what was, uh, what was a day in the life of Jim Brown like during those times? I mean, were you running around like a chicken with your head cut off Mm -hmm. or were you sitting back nice and relaxed in the main operations center? Uh, Did you get to go out to venues and see any competitions? You know, what was it, what was life like for you leading up to and during the games? Well, leading up to, I don't think we, I mean, and that, that's definitely something I learned from, from Sydney. I think if you plan well. Uh, and you've done it the right way with the right people. I think those days leading up to definitely are long and, and, and you, you definitely had some issues to deal with, but to a certain extent, it was, it wasn't as overwhelming as, as people expect or think it would be. In fact, one of the highlights of my, my Salt Lake time in the lead up was I'd say a few months before I had the idea because Fraser was having a lot of questions about the venues and how were they and are they getting ready? And and we had the idea of once a week. So we took a day a week, I think it was a Wednesdays or Thursdays, and we went out to a couple of venues each week, whether it was Snow Basin and, and uh, whatever in the, the ice center um, one day. And then we, we literally went to visit every single one, including the IBC and the main media center which weren't necessarily in, in my my management portfolio, but I think they were obviously important sites. And we went out to every one and, and about halfway through and we drove, uh, and he drove actually, and we told stories and he asked me questions about what to expect. And, and we really had a great, really a great, great experience. But about halfway through that phase, <laughs> he had told Mitt about these, these visits that we were having and about halfway through, <laughs> He came to me and he said, would you mind if Mitt joined us for the last few? And I'm like, well, I can't say no to that. So I got to sit in the back seat when, when uh, Fraser drove and Mitt sat in, uh, in the front seat. And, and just the, the questions and the, I mean, they're two really brilliant men um, in a lot of ways and, you know, outside of their Olympic roles. And then even in the Olympics, I think they were as smart as anybody I've worked with. And, and those conversations, those questions, you know, prepared me and how they interacted with the venue managers who were there and, and received them. And some of the questions they got um, from from these two guys were were really uh, some of the highlights of my, my experience. And and, and I, I think you know, we, we did that, but we also worked and we dealt with issues and sight lines from seats and. You know, is that room big enough? Are those are those bleachers at UOP safe enough? If you remember how steep those were, and they seemed to hang out in the middle of 
middle of the sky, really, and and uh, and and being pushed and and being really questioned and challenged by these guys was really a highlight. But as we as we then approached the games, I, I think there were people were getting nervous, and I think you know there was a lot at stake. And I remember you know being at um, at Rice Eccles. I don't know if you were there, but for the dress rehearsal. Um, which was really our first security event and um, dealing with the fact that the the magnetometers were turned up so high um, for that event that the, 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 the eye rings in, in boots, the metal uh, was, was um, setting off the, the mag. So we weren't getting anybody through nearly in time. And dealing with the questions and, and issues from from my bosses and and beyond, <laughs> how are we going to get this thing off on time? And and really trying to ensure that everybody knew things were in place for a reason, and we would push as we could, and and we did get everybody in on time. But but dealing with that nervousness and and some of those concerns, and how to share that information with people who really were under a lot of pressure whether Scott Gibbons and whoever, I mean, all of them uh, was, was really, and that, that was the pressure, I think. And then once we got through that opening ceremonies, I think things really very quickly felt pretty smooth. And by the end of it, I, I got to go to some, some events and watch, whether it was handing out flowers at speed skating, which was a great opportunity Mitt got for us. Uh, to sharing some some of the events with my family, which was was also a highlight for me. So, but but by by that typically these events, as you know now, you know three four days into it, they really start going quite smoothly, and and you deal with issues, of course, but it's not the same intensity as the early days for sure. All right, well. Let- and you've given me a lot to unpack, but I want to talk about issues for a minute. You asked me the question. <laughs> yeah, I asked an open question and I got an awesome answer. Let's talk about issues. Um, so you mentioned uh, as it is normally after uh, after the first few days, things really calm down. But in those first few days, what was a what was an example of an issue that came through? It could have been like maybe it was a really big issue that you had to solve, or maybe it was just something that was seemed really funny. Just give an example of some of the issues that came through in those early days that you and your and your um, team there in the in the main operations center and functional area command had to had to uh, sort out. Yeah, and I I mean quite frankly, I didn't spend a lot of time in the main operations center either. We had staff in there who would call and, and let me know. I mean, I didn't want to get stuck stuck in there. And, and I don't think you know, I would have been as helpful as I would be out in the field. But a lot, a lot of the issues were, were, were volume issues and, and perhaps scale adjustments. I mean, I remember, um, you know, parking, getting waves of cars in and out between sessions at UOP, which, you know, Colin Hilton and his team dealt with, but that was a, that was a big issue, you know, letting, broadcasters abusing, and I can say that out loud, abusing their rights and privileges in terms of where they could go uh, in, in and out of stadiums and when they could and how they could and all that. Certainly had some conversations with the the, the, the broadcast people, and, and I think they were having a tough time controlling their their constituency. Um, you know, the, the main operation, the main media center, um, 
it sat very obviously in downtown uh, and really had to integrate in with with Sloss and, and our, our center our center of Salt Lake City venue, so to speak, and, and the Metals Plaza and all that stuff. And and I think getting that venue to work within the parameters of the, the broader Salt Lake City operation, I think was was one early on getting deliveries in and out for the for the media. You know, and then there was getting getting the mags uh, working and getting people in and out of facilities. It was always an issue. Uh, it got smoother. Sometimes staff were a little too persistent and a little too careful and letting everybody know that there's a difference between doing a good job and a great job. And sometimes a great job is to not do as much <laughs> uh, as, as they thought, although they technically were doing exactly what they were told. So it, it was a matter of communication and, and I think really, as I said, scales, you know, we had uh, some of the longest lines I remember in concession stands at, at Snow Basin and they didn't have enough uh, food for the spectators, if, if I remember correctly. And so I think there was just those kind of things where we had the resources to fit quite quickly and we had the people who could help uh, where, where needed and, and just just getting everybody to adjust to what the demand was, I think. Uh, was the issue. What about weather? Any significant issues that were uh, caused by weather? Yes. I mean, we had wind at Utah Olympic Park. You know, it was a beautiful day, if I remember correctly. And it was the day I visited Colin and his team up there. And next thing you know, we were sitting in a room deciding whether they could jump or not. Um, and uh, the wind was just too much. So they had to postpone a session, which we had rehearsed a hundred times. Wind at UOP was never an example, but it Apparently happens a lot, and, and we were prepared for it. But yeah, weather was a factor, and it got cold, as you remember, and there was a lot of snow. And you know, getting rid of snow was was something we had. Uh, Laney Jones did a did a great job of uh, of planning all of that, and we spent hours and hours and hours preparing for that. And sure enough, it snowed a lot, and her people did a great job of getting snow out of seats and snow out of spectator areas, and and getting it out of the out of the venue, it was. Uh, but we, we were we were prepared. The the people in charge of their areas were spectacular, and they did a great job. What's one story that um, maybe wasn't safe to tell at the time, but now with uh, nineteen years in the rearview mirror? You can look back on it and say, all right, maybe I can go ahead and share that one now. Uh, I can't. That's a good question. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't think there were that many of those, um, I have to say. You know, I had an encounter with with Mark Lewis and, and Brett Hopkins at uh, the hockey final, but that one I still won't. I won't repeat that one, but that's a good one. Um, no, but gen generally speaking, I, I think it was really quite, uh, I can't say the most nervous I was during the entire uh, Olympic experience was was handing over flowers to the speed speed skaters <laughs> after they had won their medals, or they didn't have their medals yet because they get their medals in the evening at Medals Plaza, but we were allowed, and, and that's by far the most nervous I ever was, was to step up and hand a the females, um, speed skaters, their, their flowers, which 
Uh, I still don't understand why I got so nervous, but it just gives you a, an example of how, how impactful this Olympic experience is for people, no matter how many times they've been through that, uh, the games and, and worked on them. That, that was really a, a highlight in a lot of ways. I, I typically ask everybody this question because there are so many wonderful memories that everybody has of these games. But if you, if you had to choose one, or it could be a couple, but let's say if there's one memory that really stands out as kind of your goosebump moment, it's the moment that just makes the hair stand up uh, whenever you think about it. What would it be for you when it comes to your Salt Lake 2002 experience? Uh, I think by far, well, I wouldn't say by far, but a, a good example of a goosebump moment, moment which is probably more, more related to my previous experience, which was... Uh, you know, I oversaw Olympic Stadium in Sydney, and if you may know or don't know, um, our cauldron got stuck uh, at, at the at Olympic Stadium in Sydney. It, it literally, poor Kathy Freeman stood there for an extra you know five ten minutes holding the torch above her head as we as people were trying to get it back onto the onto the hook, which took the cauldron up the up the stands. And I have to say, you know, in, in Salt Lake, having been at the opening ceremonies and watched that torch uh, cauldron get lit. And if you may remember, there was a little pause between the the hockey, 1980 hockey gold medal team lighting it and it actually lighting up at the top. And uh, it brought back memories of, of Sydney and certainly that pause was when I got, I could literally feel the hair stand up on my arms as I went, oh, here we go again. Uh, not that I was in charge of it this time, but certainly I do have that memory of that slight pause before the, the cauldron light a flame went up and certainly a great relief and certainly some emotion that it all went, went well. Yeah, I can imagine you 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 just have this lump in your throat. It's like barely, and then whew, crisis averted. I tell people to this day, I can still not listen to the opening ceremony music from Sydney because I still get nervous. Wow, that's incredible! You've shared so many great memories, but let's talk about what happened after Salt Lake. So the games end. Yeah. Then where do you go from there? Well, I. Uh, I stayed here, but I was fortunate enough, as you probably know, uh, to work with uh, a company, the Olympics, or the IOC started soon after Salt Lake, a lot of it based on Sydney experience, but started an OGKS, Olympic Games Knowledge Service. So I spent, I'd say, almost a year helping helping Craig McClatchy and the team in, in Lausanne um, start to populate the, the Knowledge Center. and. Um, set up forums to, to gather information. We had an active role in, in helping the 2010 bidders for the, the Olympics of 2010 um, by providing them with forums with, with you know, Grant Thomas and others presenting. Darren Hughes presented at some of those meetings, Ron Delmont. So a lot of real legends of the Olympic movement in a lot of ways. And, and that was really fun to put apart, pull together. And then, uh, Early in 2003, I got a call from a, a headhunter based out of Switzerland looking for a, a, a person to lead the events for, a, as they said, a, a major international federation. And uh, 
I said, well, there's probably two <laughs> that I can think of. One is FIFA and one is IAAF. And, and sure enough, it was FIFA. And I was fortunate enough to get the job as director of competitions at FIFA, which I joined in, in June of 2003 and, uh, and led all of their events. So everything from the World Cup, Women's World Cup, Olympics um, tournaments. And I was there for eight years, so two cycles. So I, I, I delivered Germany 2006 as, as, a, as an event people know uh, and, and left FIFA soon after the South Africa World Cup. And then as, as, I, as I shared with you earlier, I, I consulted with FIFA for four years through the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. So I, I mean, that, that was my transition out. And, and as I said at the beginning, you know, I didn't really want to go. It really was an amazing job. And in, in, as I found early on, it wasn't an easy job, as people know. Uh, a lot of people know FIFA now for the wrong reasons, perhaps. But, but it was a tremendously challenging job with uh, you know, 40 World Cups in the span of uh, 45 World Cups in the span of seven, eight years. And and as we said, we're, we're traveling a bit, but those 200 days were literally global traveling, which, which uh, took a lot out of me and certainly uh, was a factor as to why I left was mainly to spend more time with my family and return back to Park City. Clearly, you've learned a lot along the way, and you've amassed an incredible amount of knowledge and experience. And so I'd like to know from you, you know, what are some of the things that you learned, whether it was in Salt Lake or other stops along the way, that have kind of become, for lack of a better term, your guiding principles? Yeah, they're they're things that you live by, uh, whether in your career, in your life, that, that have helped you. And that you could share with the listeners of our little podcast here that, you know, could potentially help them as well. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess the principles I have and, and having really made a lot of my career based on the fact that I had done a lot of a lot of these before, you know, that certainly gave me a leg up uh, on on what my jobs were at the various Olympics. Atlanta, you know, I've had some world cup experience. And then I just built it on from there. But, but certainly one thing I do say is just because I've done it doesn't mean I know more than the other guy. Um, and I think everybody has a lot to contribute. And I think that's where using, you know, this, the Sydney example with, with Jim Sloman, who is a COO and Sandy Holloway and elements of the government, you know, they knew what they were doing. Um, they just hadn't done Olympics before. Um, so I, I think you know I've learned that don't don't be intimidated by people who have done it before because this isn't rocket science. We're not performing brain surgery, uh, which requires real knowledge and and experience. And and I think go 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 to what you know and and do what you know to do, and you will eventually learn um, to do what you need to do for these type of big events. Certainly, having a, a calming personality, perhaps, or or staying cool under pressure, definitely helps. And, and there's some traits that are probably important. Um, but I, I think don't be overly impressed by those who, who who have done things before you, or you perceive that they they know more than you. Uh, and then the other one is 
just be prepared to work really hard and, 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 or surround yourself with people who are really good at what they do. And, uh, and I think that's where Mitt and Fraser in, in the case of Slock did, did an amazing job. They were never threatened by those who knew, uh, and they, they used us, um, the right way, which is based on, on our experiences, but at no point did they feel insecure, uh, with, with having us around, which, which sometimes people feel threatened by that. And, and they, I think, uh, used us the right way and, and took us seriously and, and, but made us obviously accountable for what we had to deliver at the same time, which was, you know, that challenging, but, but also very fulfilling. Well, that's fantastic advice. I really appreciate you sharing it. I do feel like, uh, at least in this business, you've got to be able to be calm under pressure. If you're the kind of person that can roll with the punches, yeah. then you'll, you'll probably be better off because these events are just, well, how do I say it? It's, it's overcoming one insurmountable obstacle after another or meeting one impossible deadline after another. You just have to be able to do it. And if you can remain calm, under that kind of pressure, then chances are you'll feel better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you'll have a more enjoyable experience yeah. and you'll be more effective. So I think this is fantastic, fantastic uh, advice, Jim. I really appreciate you sharing that with us and sharing all of these stories. I'm sure we just tip the tip the iceberg on all the stories. Before I, we wrap up, is there anything else? Did we leave anything out? No, I, I think the only thing I can think of is, is I think we did in Salt Lake did a great job in 2002. And I, I think it's really impressive the work that Fraser and Colin and, and everybody are doing to, to try to bring the Olympics back. And I think there's some concern that, you know, hosting it so close to the last time might not be the best, but you know, I, I believe it'll be a whole different experience, a whole new experience. And, and certainly I think Salt Lake would do a great job. And, and, and I think a lot of people who did a great job in 2002 may have the opportunity to do it again, which would be, would be, would be great. And, and I think the community here deserves it. And I think they did a great job in 2002. And I think they'll do a great job whenever it comes back, which I think will be someday in, in the next few years, let's hope. I hope so too. Fingers crossed uh, that the, I mean, it's, it's challenging right now because who knows what the process is even supposed to be. Uh, and with COVID and all the kind of stuff, just throwing a wrench in everything, but I would love to see the games come back here to Salt Lake and it would be great to be involved with them again. All right. Well, this has been awesome. It's been great to chat with you for about an hour, Jim. If people want to, learn more about the work that you're doing with rugby or other projects that you're engaged in currently, or if they just want to kind of swap stories of Salt Lake 2002 or other major events that you've been involved in, what's the best way for them to contact you? Uh, they can email me. No problem. Uh, it's probably the best way. Um, and, and I can give you my email address now or, or email it to you or wh whatever it is. I mean, how do you want me to try to say it now? Or Yeah, you can go ahead and say it and then I'll, I can put it in the notes. Okay. Um, my email address is jim.brown at jbcintl, like international.com. So jim.brown at jbcintl.com. And I, I would welcome anybody who has any questions for me. All right. Fantastic, Jim. Well, again, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Jim, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.